0: So in his model, there was a large ball representing the sun, a golden ball in the center of the model. And around it revolved several smaller spheres representing the planets. And they were orbiting the sun in exactly the same configuration as the actual solar system. There were rods and cogwheels and belts that drove the mechanism with exact precision so that it functioned just like our solar system functions. One day a friend called on the noted scientist while he was studying the model. The friend was not a believer in biblical creation. So his friend commented on Newton's replica. My, Newton, what an exquisite thing. Who made it for you? Newton replied, nobody. Nobody? replied his friend. That's right. Newton said, nobody. All these balls and cogs and belts and gears just happened to come together And wonder of wonders, by chance, they began revolving around in their set orbits with perfect timing. Well, the book of Genesis tells us much about the heavens and the earth. But more importantly, we are introduced to the designer and the maker, not only of the solar system, but of everything that exists. Genesis is the foundation of history and of the Bible it is likely the most significant book ever written. And the reason we would say that is it contains the only real explanation of God and man and life that offers some hope of assurance of the fulfillment of God's purpose. We see in Scripture a purpose that God has for His creation. And we're going to take a brief look this morning at the consummation of that purpose. It's the only book, really, which offers any legitimate claim to being reliable history from the ancient world. More than half of all human history is covered in the 50 chapters of Genesis. That's a lot. According to Genesis, everything was designed and created by God, including the centerpiece of his creation, mankind, created in his image. Now, man's sin tarnished this beautiful world that God had made, but God's not finished at this point with the world, and it's going to be recreated into what God intended it to be. The things that began in Genesis find their consummation in the book of Revelation. God will not leave this world undone in the throes of sin. So let me recommend an excellent companion to our study. It is the Genesis Record, a scientific and devotional commentary on the book of Beginnings by Henry Morris. And in that book, he presents the present world as the probationary world, as described in Genesis. And then in Revelation, we find the eternal world. Let's take a look at that. First, we see the creation of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1. And then in Revelation twenty-one one, the creation of a new heaven and earth. And then we see in Genesis two nine the tree of life in the midst of the garden. In Revelation we see the tree of life throughout the city, down the street, the sides of the river. In Revelation twenty-two two. Then back in Genesis chapter three verses one through six, Satan is victorious in tempting man to sin. But then in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, Satan is defeated in his final attack. Number four, a curse is pronounced on creation as a result of man's sin in Genesis 3, beginning in verse 14. But hallelujah, the curse will be lifted from creation, we see in Revelation 22, 3. Man was driven from the garden in Genesis three twenty-four. But God's people are welcomed to the holy city in Revelation twenty-two one. There's daily sorrow from the curse back in Genesis chapter 3. But there will be no more sorrow for mankind. In Revelation 21.4 we are told that every tear will be wiped from their eyes. What a day that will be. Man is returning to the dust in Genesis 3.19. There will be no more death in Revelation 21.4. We see a division of light and darkness right in the first chapter of Genesis, verse 4. But there will be no night there in Revelation 21.25 because you won't need any rest and you'll be in the presence of the light of Christ. A Redeemer is promised in that famous verse in Genesis 3.15, a well-known verse, And redemption is accomplished when the Lamb is sitting upon the throne in Revelation 5, 9, and 10. And then finally, we see God walking in the garden in Genesis 3, 8. And we see then in Revelation 21, 3, God dwelling among his people. Now, there are other things that we could talk about, but that would give you an idea of what is happening in the beginning as we see the a stage set for what man is going to do, how God is going to take care of those things, moving toward a time in Revelation where He makes all things new. Let's consider the content of the book of Genesis. What is contained in this book? Genesis has been referred to as the seedbed of truth. God's Word is what we might call progressive revelation. And what that means is God will plant a little seed of some idea back in Genesis, and then later on, in some of the other books of the Bible, and years later, he develops that idea into the full-blown culmination of what he was giving a hint of back in Genesis. Genesis contains the account of the beginning of everything except God. There's the beginning of the universe, the beginning of mankind, the beginning of the nation of Israel. It not only includes beginnings, but generations, genealogies, covenants. It's written in narrative prose. And that means something in the scripture. When you find something written in narrative prose, that means that it is literal history. And this is intended in Genesis to be literal history, even the first 11 chapters. How is the content presented? Well, we'll give you a way that you can easily remember what's going on here in the book of Genesis complete with the hand motions. First we see the origin of humanity in general and this would be the prologue of God's great drama of redemption. This is going to give you the introduction. The curtains are closed. The narrator is going to tell you what's happening. We see the actors who will be on the stage. We see the plot. Uh, We see God behind the curtains doing whatever he is going to do. So here we go. In that section, we find the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Bible. And that's what you get in the prologue, Genesis 1 through 11. Creation of the heavens and the earth and the chapters. Creation of Adam and his family as a part of that. The temptation and fall of man into sin. Noah and his family in the flood and the Tower of Bible. Do you think you can do it now with emotions? Okay, Uh, we'll practice that over in first light. Now, it's interesting, the last thing we see here is the Tower of Babel, where God confused the speech of the nations, of the peoples, and they separated into people groups. It's interesting in Scripture that God will one day reverse the effects of the Babel rebellion. And this is something that I never noticed in Zephaniah, For at that time, God says, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. Did you ever wonder what you would do when you get to heaven or if we get to the new heavens and new earth? What if you wanted to communicate with some Chinese Christian? What if you want to talk to somebody that was led the Lord by Hudson Taylor over there? Well, unless you had an interpreter... You wouldn't be able to do it. There won't be any need for an interpreter because there will be one pure speech at that time. And then we have the second section. And the second section is going to contain the lives of four men. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So it's pretty simple. You've got four events in the first section. And then you've got four men in the second section. Abraham, the father who gave his son. Isaac, the son who took a bride. Jacob, the cheater who got cheated and then repented. And Joseph, the favorite son who experienced the protection and provision of a sovereign God. I love the story of Joseph. You can also learn from the lives of Adam and Eve and Noah, and we will. Now, what is contained in the book of Genesis? Part B, what we just said, there's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so we have a a neat uh, category here that we can put things in to remember what's happening in the book of Genesis. Now, you might say, well, if half of all human history is included there, then God has left out a lot. And obviously he has, but he gives a lot of genealogies so that you get the flow of time and what's going on there. He gives us the important things that we need to know about. The name of the book and the author. What's the origin of the name? Genesis comes to the English from the Greek, and it's a word meaning beginning or origin or generation. And the title comes from the Septuagint which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament several hundred years before Christ. See, the critics want to say, wait a minute, people came and wrote that stuff in the Old Testament after the events had already taken place and called it prophecy. But it was already translated into the Greek language well before Christ. Who is the author of the book of Genesis? One day Christ, after his resurrection, was walking on the road to Emmaus and he met up with a couple of his disciples and he carried on a little conversation, but they didn't recognize him. And here's what he had to say. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Numerous times in the scripture references made to the writings of Moses and this would be one of those occasions. So he's talking about the Pentateuch, I think he's talking about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and then all the prophets that come after that. The Pentateuch also be the books of the Law and the Law and the Prophets. He talks about the Law and the Prophets many times in the New Testament. So we would presume, most Bible scholars would presume that Moses was the one who wrote the book of Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Now, how could Moses write about something that happened before his birth? Well, God could just reveal it to him outright. All scripture is inspired by God. Or he could have used ancient sources under the direction of the Holy Spirit. We don't know exactly, but I'm guessing that Moses is the man who did it. In fact, it would be more than a guess. I'm presuming that Moses is the man who wrote the book. God wrote the book through Moses. The purpose, what is the purpose of the writing of the book of Genesis? 2 Timothy 3.16, we just quoted that verse, part of it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. Now that comes from the New Testament, and that's kind of an overall scope of things. But we want to look in Genesis and see the specific purposes that God had in mind. Genesis gives the historical account of a number of things. It's the account of God and man, sin and grace, wrath and mercy, covenant and redemption, election and rejection. An example would be the election of Isaac and Jacob, the rejection of Ishmael and Jacob, where God clearly says, I'm not choosing you, I'm choosing you. Now, that doesn't sound too good to Americans, but it goes much deeper than that. From Adam's many sons, God chose Seth in Genesis 4.25. Then from Seth's many descendants that we see in Genesis chapter 5, God chose Noah in chapter 6, verse 8, a righteous man in his generation. Then from Noah's family, He chose Shem in Genesis 11.10 and Terah, in 11.27 and finally Abraham in 12.1 Abraham had many children but whom did God choose? Isaac, the promised son. Isaac had two sons Jacob and Esau God chose Jacob to be the recipient of his blessing Why did God choose these people? Did they deserve the honor of being chosen by God? No, they didn't deserve anything but condemnation They were covenant breakers just like we are But God chose them out of His goodness of His heart and His amazing grace. And we need to keep that in mind. Now Moses reminds us something about that in the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord did not set His love on you, He says to the Israelites, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the people, for you were fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. There are a lot of covenants and promises in the book of Genesis and as well in the first five books. Now, why is Genesis so important in our day that we have an explanation of what is given there? You understand that much condemnation from the supposed scientific community has been leveled at the book of Genesis and its creation account. So far as I can see, there's no real division or discrepancy between God and true science. But there are major discrepancies among man's theories and how God states that he actually did it. There are many theories out there as to how God was doing it. But God said he commanded and it stood fast. Pretty simple. And he said many other things with regard to that that we'll be taking a look at in coming weeks. We might add that man's speculation as to how the process takes place has changed radically over the centuries and it continues to change. Consider what we thought about the universe 200 years ago, 500 years ago, and now things are changing rapidly. So be careful. We see now the Genesis account and then we compare that uh, with the secular sources very briefly. And usually with these secular sources the problem is not really science The problem is usually a presupposition of the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system. Genesis indicates just the opposite. It's an open system. God is functioning within the system. In fact, he created the system. And he ensures that the system continues to function as it should until the day that system will be removed and we'll have a new heaven and a new earth. And a lot of things have got to happen before that time. So God created it, and He's actively involved in the superintendence of every molecule that is floating around in this universe. Hebrews chapter 1 and 1 through 3, before we get to the Genesis account there. It says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, and by whom also he made the worlds, the Son made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Christ is upholding all things in the universe through the word of His power. We don't have to worry that some asteroid is going to come and hit the earth and somehow prematurely destroy everything. God is in control of all of that. And He's told us a lot about it. Now in Genesis 1-1, following verses... You know that God said, let there be sun, moon, stars, planets, solar systems, galaxies, plants, moving creatures, uh, you name it. He talks just about everything there. But there are some other explanations for how that came about. Uh, here is um, Stephen Dawkins, or Stephen Hawking, writing in his book, The Grand Design. He says, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Did you get that? Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists and why we exist. So we see spontaneous regeneration as opposed to what God had said in the beginning he had created the heavens and the earth. Now we're going to take a look at a short uh, interview here. This is Dr. Lawrence Krauss, no kin to Greg. He is a theoretical physicist. And uh, when I first saw it, I thought this was an actor who was kind of putting on an act. Obviously, talk shows are for entertainment, and you can see the host is pretty skilled in these things, if we get it to fly here, Stephen Colbert, the host. But Dr. Lawrence Krauss explaining his book, A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather than nothing, he'll be the guy in the orange tennis shoes. Well, pretty interesting. What does a theoretical physicist do? He comes up with theories about how things should function and why things are the way they are. And there are some pretty wild ideas now as to how things got here and how they continue to be here. So that would be the spontaneous generation idea that something came out of nothing. Now we see order and complexity in the scripture, the first chapter. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was good. And, of course, we have an orderly account of how he is creating those things in that chapter as he goes along. An orderly God created an orderly universe, and man, by using his reason, could discover the form and order of what God had created and the incredible complexity of what the designer had put into the system. And you see, through the sciences, we can, in some ways, help to restore the effects of sin as we conquer disease, as we use our minds to figure out how bacteria and germs and things cause disease, a lot of which we could have learned from the Scripture through the matter of quarantine and other things. So God knew about these things. He sometimes relates to it in the Scriptures in a seed form. And he's given us minds by which we can develop these things for ourselves. God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good, all of these things. But the secular sources would say these things emerged from chaos by natural forces. Again, uh, another reference here, Doug Frazier writes, Living on the Edge, Chaos, Order, and Complexity, title of his article. At first glance, it is indeed hard to imagine how any series of random events could ever produce complex orderly systems. However, if we can show that random events interacting according to orderly non-random rules can produce orderly patterns, then we must conclude, at least in principle, complex living systems could indeed arise by natural selection. I would ask, from where, just where, did these orderly rules originate? Well, I would say God created the orderly rules of nature and everything that is going to abide by them. Next, uh, Genesis tells us that God created conscious life in Genesis 1, verses 20 and 21. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and the fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. But the secular... Sources would tell us that it is strictly the impersonal, that's a hydrogen atom or whatever, we don't really know, but we would guess maybe a hydrogen atom, and time, billions of years of time, and pure randomness, chance, the impersonal plus time plus chance, made everything. Then we see that God created man in his image, the high point of his creation, And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. We have on the one hand, man created in God's image. Man can think and act and express emotions as God does. We've talked about this many times. Then why don't we see people all over the earth acting like Christ? Well, that image of God was marred by the fall in sin. But it can be repaired to the extent that you are willing to have Christ in control of your life. And then you can make His thoughts your thoughts. And then you can do the things that He did on this earth, loving people, helping people, pointing them to the Father. And then you can have that attitude down in your heart That would cause you to say the things that would build others up, as we were talking about in first light. We see that uh, Genesis also predicted that man's enemy, Satan, would be defeated by the seed of woman. And we'll talk a little more about that. You can participate in that victory by which Christ has overcome the enemy and given us the grace to be able to live the life he called us to live. Man, according to secular sources, is strictly a product of Darwinistic evolution. Then we see marriage in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But to many today, marriage is just a curious and outdated cultural folk way. Some people really don't care what's being said. But others like to have some intellectual support for the decisions that they are making. Here is Alison Patton, a lady who is a family lawyer and mediator, a divorce coach, she calls herself. And she says this, and I quote, the idea that monogamy is natural is absurd. We know that past civilizations and countries throughout the world today don't share our American concept of monogamy. We as Americans hold on to this cultural norm even though the institution of marriage was created at a time when most of the population died around age 30. I was just reading that it was created when most of the population lived to be over 900. You see, it's a very different presupposition that these people uh, come from, a presupposition of strict naturalism. Well, here's a problem for all the philosophers and everyone. Where did evil Come from. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. You either obey God or you disobey God, and God's law is written on our hearts. This is before Moses received the law from God, but God's law is written on our hearts. And we know that certain things are not right. But according to secular sources, evil will be defined subjectively or by majority opinion. If you want to know what's evil, you decide for yourself. Some things that might be evil for you might be okay for somebody else. Or either we're going to get everybody together and vote or have our representatives vote and they'll determine what's evil and what's legal and moral. Language and nations, uh, Genesis chapter 11 and verse 8. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Secular sources, that's just a product of evolution. These people started speaking differently, and their language developed according to the Scripture. We have everybody speaking the same language, and then all of a sudden their tongues were changed, their speech was changed, And they couldn't communicate with each other because God had a purpose in that. Government. Genesis 12, 1. Now, you might ask, where do we see government in this verse? Now, the Lord said to Abram, get out from your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Where's the government? In his book, Law and Liberty, Rishas Rushduni, talks about the first government that a child comes in contact with, and that would be the family. And that's where they learn right and wrong and the law and how we relate to authority and all of those kind of things. He quotes Alex Peterman in an old textbook, you wouldn't get this today, Elements of Civil Government, I quote, The family is a form of government established for the good of children themselves and the first government that each of us must obey, end of quote. And then he goes on to define the family's purpose, members, rights, duties, responsibilities, officers. But what does the state say? Government is something established by man. And the sovereign state will rule over you from the cradle to the grave. I don't mean Texas. I mean the the state government will rule. And then religion in Genesis 15 We see, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, Abram, saying, This man will not be your heir, that's Ishmael, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. Then he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. What do you think secular sources would say about religion? It's just man's superstition. Here is the explanation of religion from a book, The Outline of History by H.G. Wells, well-known evolutionist. It must be clear from what has gone before that primitive man, much less his ancestral apes and his ancestral Mesozoic mammals, could have no idea of God or religion. Only very slowly did his brain and his powers of comprehension become capable of such general conceptions. Religion is something that has grown up with and through human association, and God has been and still is being discovered by man. And then he goes on to say, men were becoming aware that personally they needed protection and direction cleansing from impurity, power beyond their own strength. Confusedly, in response to that demand, bold men, wise men, shrewd men, and cunning men were arising to become magicians, priests, chiefs, and kings. And he goes on to give the evolutionary basis for religion, man's superstition. Then God's chosen people, and we have read uh, some of the scripture verses on that in Genesis 15, 18, the same day. The Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. But secular sources would say that's an ancient Hebrew myth. And again, some people don't care what they say, but you would be amazed at the things that are compiled to support this kind of thinking. Kenneth Humphreys writes a book entitled Jesus Never Existed. And he has tons of information, supposedly historical, but what he says in a nutshell is first invent your Jew, then invent your Christ. He says the whole thing is a myth. The Jewish nation, Jesus, the whole business. Now there are several points to keep in mind here as we consider The contrast between God's words and these skeptical secular sources. First, to believe in evolution requires a lot of faith. I'd say that the system of truth in the Bible is easier to believe than some of these far out ideas that have been proposed with regard to a solution. Something out of nothing ignores a fundamental law of science. Ex nihilo nihil fit. Out of nothing nothing comes. It takes quite a stretch to believe that nothing produces something. But the answer I think is that the nothing of the theoretical physicist is not really nothing. It's something. It's a particle. It's energy. It's some kind of gravity. It's something. And God made it, in my opinion. Secondly, true intellectuals do not believe in spontaneous regeneration. A more accurate description would be Gradual, spontaneous regeneration. You can't get something out of nothing quickly, but in billions of years it might just happen. Third, a person's morality usually dictates his or her theology. H.G. Wells, who wrote that history book, was a vile and despicable evolutionist who didn't mind killing off a few people who didn't fit into the program. He was a moral man. He had numerous affairs while he was married, including an affair with Margaret Sanger, who founded Planned Parenthood. Many are looking for an explanation that eliminates God, the righteous judge, His Ten Commandments, any kind of reckoning day, where one has to answer for the life that he's lived. Then some people struggle with the idea of reconciling a concept of a loving God with all the pain and suffering. Is God loving? Well, why doesn't He just eliminate all the pain and suffering? Well, that's exactly what He is going to do. But He is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, wanting everyone to come to salvation. One day He will do that. But He's not only all loving, He is all justice. And because He is all justice, He must punish sin. So the pain and suffering in the world come from the curse of sin that is on the earth. I may not have the flu because of some specific sin that I've committed, but this matter of influenza comes as a result of the curse, the possibility for getting the flu. And lastly, people don't like the idea of a cosmic conflict between good and evil. So you can fix that through ethical relativism. Whatever's evil is just what's evil to you. It might be good to somebody else. And it kind of changes depending on what you would choose to authenticate yourself. That The the only one absolute is there are no absolutes, especially in the areas of morals and ethics. So let's close with another section now. What else do we find in Genesis? Christ is the focal point of history. And we'll run through this quickly because we'll be studying this in future days. Christ is a creative word and we see in Genesis 1 3 God said let there be light there was light but in John 1 1 through 3 and some other verses there a passage with which you're very very familiar in the beginning was the word the word was with God the word was God the same was in the beginning with God All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. We read that in Colossians. We saw it in Hebrews. You see it all throughout the Scripture. Christ is the Creator. The last Adam. Christ is the last Adam. Genesis 3.17 Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake and toil. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Then we see those words made well known by the Messiah. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. All who are in Christ, that is. The seed of woman, Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It was not, Satan thought it was fatal, but it was not a fatal blow. And then the New Testament, Galatians 3, 19 and 20. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. And that seed that came was Christ. In Galatians 4, 4, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Then Abel gives us a picture of something here. In Genesis 4, and in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering because it was a blood offering. Then we see in the New Testament, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, He still speaks. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, he's not talking about here the blood of Abel when his brother killed him. He's talking about the blood of Abel's sacrifice. That was a type of the blood of Christ who would be the perfect Lamb of God coming later. It's amazing how many things you find that point to Christ in the book of Genesis. Noah and the Flood, Genesis 6 through 10. Now, I'm not going to read all of this because we are familiar with the flood and what happened. And then in the New Testament, 2 Peter 2, 5, And God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, when Noah was preaching... Evidently, the Spirit of Christ, God's Spirit, was preaching through Him. And so we get a good explanation for this interesting passage. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the Spirit, in which also the Spirit in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. What is this Christ preaching in the Spirit to the spirits in prison? Is this purgatory? Well, I don't think so. I think this is the Spirit of Christ preaching through Noah a spirit who is a preacher of righteousness to those people who didn't listen and rejected it and then were in prison. Melchizedek, this shadowy figure that we see in Scripture there. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and water. Now he was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. We see in Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Well, we see some things there. He was a king of righteousness and king of peace. Christ came as a king of righteousness. Some people say this was Christ. I don't think it was. He had no ancestors or successors to the priestly office. We don't have any priest anymore in terms of the Old Testament priest. Christ is the high priest. We're the priesthood of believers. He was, according to the record, a perpetual priest. No account of his death, just like Christ. And he united the office of priest and king as we see Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. Well, quickly we have Isaac, the child of promise in Genesis 17 those verses that we have read Isaac pictures Christ in his miraculous birth and his willingness to die and then be resurrected Isaac didn't really die but the verse talks about that in the New Testament Hebrews 11:17 by faith Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was offered up offering up his only begotten son it was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Now we know that uh, he found the lamb, and then the lamb was sacrificed, the ram. That will be our next one. But here was Isaac. He didn't actually die. Jesus did. It was only symbolic for Isaac. Isaac also took a bride And it was a picture of Christ returning for his church, his bride. The lamb we see in the story of Abraham. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And God did. In John 1.29, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jacob's letter. I don't think I had noticed this before. Genesis 28.12. And Jacob had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And then in the New Testament, John 1.51, And he said to them, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That was a picture in the Old Testament of what's coming. And then the last one, Joseph. A type of Christ. These are chapters, and you know the story of Joseph. He was rejected by his brothers. He was beloved of the Father. He was made to suffer unjustly. He was exalted to reign. His brothers didn't recognize him the first time, you remember. But then they did recognize him the second time. The Jewish people didn't recognize Jesus the first time. But everyone, including the Jews, will recognize him. The second time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Well, thank you for your patience. That's kind of a long overview, but there's what's going on in the book of Genesis. What about you this morning? Do you recognize Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you bowed before Him in humble repentance? Is He the focal point of your fleeting life here on earth? If He's not then make today the genesis of your life, where it's a new beginning. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Bow with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, when we look at the big picture, we are amazed at how You have placed all these things in the Scriptures, written over a period of 1,100 years by some 40-plus different men, and yet they all fit together, and the prophecies are fulfilled, and the shadows are passed away, and the reality is before us. And we thank you that we live in a day where we can understand those things. But, Lord, there are so many voices calling us today who say it's not true and it's a myth, and it's a fairy tale. And we pray, Lord, for our young people, and especially those who are on college campus now, where there would be probably few who would believe the Genesis account of everything that you have done and what you're going to do in the future. We pray that we might rear children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We ask that you would give us diligence that we would not be weary in well-doing as parents and grandparents. I pray especially for mothers in their work daily with children, with young people, with education. And Father, we look forward to that one day when we will see you as you are. And we, we will see the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we have the hope of glory. Lord, until that time, I would pray that uh, anyone who is not certain about the direction of their lives would this day give careful consideration to the life they're living and to the mandate to which you have called us. Thank you for your grace poured out upon us. Thank you that you have chosen us even though we are unworthy. We pray that we might rejoice in Your goodness poured out upon us. We pray these things in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.